Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Peter Young, thank you so much for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. I cannot thank you enough. I was so excited about our time together, and I'm excited to talk to you about your books and also your future projects that you have coming up. And I'm excited to get your life story on tape. And part of it is, like we talked about before we hit record, everybody has a story. And our passion is to help them tell it. And we know that our listeners are going to connect with you about with something having to do with your life story. And it's going to inspire and motivate them to go do things that they've been putting off. And we're all about that. So thank you again for being here. Yeah, Mike, thanks for having me on. So with your permission, we're going to start with where you were born and then go all the way up to today. And then we can talk about the books that you've written, uh, The Blue Team and Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger, right? Yep. Uh, and then also the, the your future projects. Um, so where were you born? So born and raised in Ridgewood, New Jersey, which is, um, you know, it's about 20 minutes outside of New York City. Might as well have been a world apart because it was a nice, quiet little subdivision, uh, yeah. a little, uh, suburb, suburban town. So when people tell you that Jersey's nothing but blacktop and, 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 and concrete, <laughs> they're wrong, right? Yeah, you know, the yes, I lived on, you know, hey, what what exit on the turnpike did you live off of? You know, I know that. And, and yeah. yes, when I was in, I think, junior high, there was literally a bill before the state legislature to make Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run the state song. It didn't pass. But yes, there are some really pretty areas of New Jersey. Trust me. Shout out to Bruce Springsteen. I love that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so you're born and raised in New Jersey. Yep. Growing up, who was the most influential person to you? Wow. Well, I'm the youngest of five boys. And um, so I had uh, some role models growing up. Uh, I looked up to them. You know, they were the first kind of, let's say, heroes or stars I had because I was always obsessed with sports as a little right. kid. We had hoop in the backyard. And I wanted to be a professional athlete more than anything else. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you grow up. Yep. Your, your brothers are kind of your most influential people in your life, right? Yep. You go to high school. Did you have a, did you have a favorite subject? Well, yeah, basketball. I mean, I, I, I went to school, you know, high school and college to be eligible to play basketball. So by the oh, time wow. I got to like junior high, I wanted to be the next Larry Bird. I mean, that was, that was my life's goal. I was going to be the small forward starting for the Boston Celtics as soon as I got done with college. That's awesome. So your favorite, your favorite sport, it sounds like is basketball and you're yep. super excited to go to the pros, right? So you graduate high school, then what happens? So I was lightly recruited. You know, I was a pretty good player. I actually got to play against some guys in Jersey that, you know, went on to the pros, uh, same thing in college. So I got recruited to go to George Washington university. It's not mm -hmm. Georgetown, George Washington, which is in DC. Yeah. And so, again, I'm going to be the next Larry Bird, right? That's my mentality, even though I was initially going to be a walk-on. 
three days after I graduated high school, which by the way, I graduated high school the day after Len Bias died. Remember that? The Celtics wow. drafted him second yeah. overall. He died of a cocaine overdose. Wow. I go down to DC area. That's all over the news. I do I remember that. Yeah. Bought off for the summer and got scholarship for all five years. And a little known story, Mike, or tidbit is that Red Arbach, the coach yeah. for the Boston Celtics uh -huh. and general manager, the guy that drafted Larry Bird. Yeah. He played basketball at George Washington University back like in the 40s. So all those years he was a head coach for the Celtics, he kept a house in D.C. And he would come to a couple games in a practice or two every year. So remember, I'm going to be the next Larry Bird. So I'm walking into the gym one day, getting ready for practice. And there's Red and my coach. My coach says, um, Peter, this is Red Arbach, which of course I knew who he was. Yeah. And he says, Red, this is Peter Young, one of our freshmen. And he'd already come to a few practices. And he doesn't say hi. How are you? Nice to meet you. He just says in that gravelly voice of his, ah, young, you can shoot, but you can't do nothing else. And that's the only conversation I ever had with Red Arbach. And unfortunately, he was right. Really? Yeah. So you can shoot, but you can't play defense? That was about it. At that level, that's all I could do. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. I'll bet that was encouraging. Well, you know, the funny thing was, is like, you, you walk away from there, and you're like, what am I supposed to take away from that? Like, I literally right. just talked to Red Arbach, and my coach is like, well, he thinks you can shoot, so it was a start. Wow. So you, so you play for George Washington. Yep. Then what, and you, and you graduate, right? 91. Yeah. So my last year, my head coach was Mike Jarvis, mm -hmm. um, the black guy with the beard, the bald head who went yep. on to coach St. John's and did some yeah. TV work. Very good coach. So we were finally good my last year. Um, and then I got into coaching and I was going to be the next John Wooden. Oh, I love so it. I, uh, I had an old coach. I played two summers for athletes in action. It's yeah. that Christian team where you travel overseas and use yeah. basketball as your platform. He lived in Denver. So I moved out to Colorado, mm -hmm. stayed at some distant relatives houses. And, um, he could help me get an assistance job at university of Colorado in Boulder. Oh, and then, um, the next year I coached at golden high school. Okay. And so I'm like, you know, what do I be like 24, maybe 25 flat mm -hmm. broke, <laughs> you know, the dream of becoming a college coach is starting to sour on me a little bit. Yeah. So I read the book. What color is your parachute? Remember that book? Yeah. It, you know, you would give it to a high school or college graduate so you could figure out what you want to do with your life. Yeah. And I read it and said, I'm going to be a sports broadcaster. Oh, I love it. And so in my mind, I was going to be the next Bob Costas. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And um, so then I left Colorado, got my first job in little old Pocatello, Idaho, 1995. Okay. And? And so, well, let's see. From there, that was a, um, it was an NBC affiliate for about the first month that we switched to ABC. Yeah. I made $14,000, $14,500 a year. And, uh, but loved it, right? You know, there was, it was the dream. I was living out the dream. Uh, I was the weekend sports anchor, weekday yeah. sports reporter. Loved it. Fell in love with Idaho. Uh, fell in love with the West and and hiking and fishing and rock climbing, all that, and kind of, you know, left New Jersey and the East Coast behind. I yeah. love it out here. I live in Montana now. And then, um, you know, Southeast Idaho is very Mormon. I'm not, even though my last name is Young. And I was single at the time, mm -hmm. and I really wanted to, you know, meet a beautiful woman and get married. And so I did. After about, oh, I'd been there about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when I met my future wife. Wow. Yeah. So, so you get married. Yeah. 
Are you still at that station? No. So, um, you know, where I just stopped off about meeting my wife really kind of starts a fascinating, at times very tragic and traumatic story, uh, which is what I do talk about in, you know, my memoir. So I released my memoir last year. So uh, I'll try and, you know, give you a good uh, a nutshell version of this. But um, so I call her Paige in, in my book. It's not a real name, but, you know, I, I changed it up for a little bit of privacy purposes. Uh, I met her at a singles Bible study in October of 96. And uh, again, little old Pocatello. And you couldn't miss her. She was, you know, six foot long, tall, blonde, absolutely beautiful, long blonde hair. And um, we met, started dating shortly thereafter. And I was about 90% sure I wanted to marry this woman. Okay. Uh, but the other 10%, if you will, were I needed to meet her father and this Uncle Robert because she talked about him all the time. Okay. So about a month later, I met her dad. He was fine. Finally got to meet the mysterious and bizarre Uncle Robert, who was mm -hmm. not related. And um, thought, well, you know, he's a little charismatic and um, a little odd, a little different, but mm -hmm. harmless. So we got engaged, then married, then, you know, 10 months after that, we had our first kid. But I'm, all, I'm kind of glossing over this, you know, really dramatic. And, and um, it's a, it was a time in my life that really kind of set the table for what was to come. And a lot happened, a lot. You can point back to that time mm -hmm. about how my future wife was manipulated. And so was I. I just didn't see what was coming down, down the pike. And what was coming down the pike was, you know, we got married. We're together for over 20 years, had five kids. But Uncle Robert... Uh, eventually took over our lives. And I can now look back, you know, the Lord has opened my eyes and ears to see the truth that he was a little cult leader and we were in a cult. And um, I was never pure enough, never devoted enough to him. So then when she left me, she started to tell all of our five children, I was the devil, I was Satan, I was a sorcerer, a lion, a coward, an alien, you name it. My life really spiraled down. I lost my marriage, lost my family. Uncle Robert caused me to doubt my faith. I was an absolute wreck. And um, that was in 2017. So that was seven years After ago. 20 years of marriage. Yep. And how many kids? Five. Wow. And there was no uh, uh, infidelity at all. No physical abuse, no sexual abuse, none of that kind. I was a totally faithful husband who loved this woman. Yeah. But it all goes back to Uncle Robert and his influence over her and her parents. So my former in-laws. Yeah. And, um, you know, so when I talk nowadays, when I do podcasts or public speaking, it's most often I used to talk a lot about, you know, my first novel which is about faith and basketball. But now I talk about what I went through is kind of a cautionary tale. Right. Because small cults are out there and they can very easily hide in society. You know, I was a sports broadcaster. I was on TV. You know, I traveled the world covering sports and nobody had any idea what I was going through. Because cults control their members through isolation, secrecy, and paranoia. So, you know, just some of the crazy ideas that Uncle Robert espoused was that all of recorded history was one giant Jewish conspiracy. So he was a raving anti-Semite. So every war, recession, depression, you name it, plane crash, was some Jewish conspiracy, you know, behind it all. He also considered churches... Uh, well, casinos to be the true churches in America. And the churches that you and I would go to on a Sunday would be a waste of time. 
And he also considered churches his, uh, sorry, casinos his office. And the man never had a job as far as I knew. I never saw him work, never saw him have a career. He didn't have a church, wasn't a big following. It was me, my wife, my kids, or our kids, her parents, and a couple other people. So maybe 10, 12 adults and some kids. Hmm. So we didn't look like other cults. You know, when you think of a cult, you might think of Jonestown, right. uh, Suicide, Waco, David Koresh, mm -hmm. uh, maybe Heaven's Gate, and that's suicide. Um, you know, we did not have any, we didn't live in a commune. We didn't, uh, you know, all wear our same clothing or shave our heads. There was no sexual or physical violence, but we did figuratively drink the Kool-Aid, mm -hmm. which was, you know, in that little cult, it was all about Uncle Robert and his ideas. So, Mike, I always tell people that cults are at their core, right? They all mm -hmm. look and sound different, but at their core, they are undue mind control. Mm -hmm. so manipulative, coercive, undue mind control. They all have that in common. And they all also have a leader. And so cult leaders come in different shapes and sizes, but they're yeah. almost always charismatic, yeah. narcissistic. They make all the rules, but they don't apply to them. Uh, they have a grandiose sense of self. They act as a gatekeeper to God. They also blur the lines of family, which they he did with ours, to where you might have, let's say, grandparents, parents, and kids. Mm -hmm. They're all now really just one level under the leader, like children of the leader. So they destroy the nuclear family. And then they make a lot of demands on your time and your money and your faith, and there's no questions allowed. You have to be absolutely obedient and loyal. Right. And Uncle Robert checked all those boxes. And this happens over time. Is this, this is sort of over time, it's a calculating, easing into, this doesn't happen overnight. Right. Because overnight, you'd go, wait, 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 something's wrong, right? Exactly. So that's what I tell people is that, you know, cult leaders don't lure you in by spouting, uh, spouting other nonsense and lies right off the bat, right? They sound really good. They sound yeah. truthful. Think of this analogy. If you miss hit a golf ball, right, by like that much? Mm -hmm. 100 yards down the fairway, it's, you know, it's way off to the left or way off to the right. It's nowhere right. near where you intended the ball to go. Right. Well, and his name is Robert Booty, but we always called him Uncle Robert. You know, he would read to us in the Bible. So he would, in effect, tee up the right golf ball, if I'm going to continue this analogy. But he would give each and every verse his own unique and perverse twist. So that 5, 10, 15 years down the road, we were anywhere near, nowhere near the true gospel. We were way right. off base. And that's how it happened. So for years, you know, I, I I went along to get along. I went along to get along with my wife because she adored and revered him. She believed everything he said. And I was trying to have a happy marriage. Yeah. So I got sucked in. So over time, they just continue to work this. It's kind of like water torture, right? It's just drip, 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 yep. right? And, it, yep. and so you get 20 years into your marriage, five kids, and at some point, she pulls away from you. Well, she had been doing that for a while. So again, there's, I mean, there's, it's a, there's a lot of stories here. I mean, you can read yeah. them in my book. But, you know, um, one of the ways that Robert did it was acting as a gatekeeper to God. So I'm a Christian, and in the Christian faith, salvation is a free gift, right? You can't earn it, and you don't need man's approval. Right. So, you know, the idea of this is the book, Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger, the, the mm -hmm. title comes from 
a dream that Paige had right before she met me. It was very prophetic. It's, again, it's fascinating the way Robert was able to twist it, turn the meaning on its head to make him the hero and convince Paige she was a fraud and not a Christian. Hmm. So then even though she'd already been baptized and professed her faith, he convinced her she's not a Christian, right? Gatekeeper to God. Right. So now he does that to her before we're even married. Hmm. And then a few years later, it's her father's turn. And then a year or two later, it's her mother's turn. And then 12 years later, it's my turn. Right. And I remember thinking like, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing something. Because I knew I could tell she thought highly of him and adored and revered him and honored and respected him in ways she didn't me. So for me, it was more of a, it was less of a, you know, gee, I, I must be a, a fraudulent demonic Christian. I was faking it all these years. It was rather, well, maybe if I try this, I'll get my marriage back, right? right. And that was like 17, 18 years into our marriage. Huh. And, you know, then she thought it was fake. She still thought I was a liar. And so did he. And and she kind of just had been pulling away for, for a couple of years until I think she was just done. I was never pure enough of a follower of him. So hmm. she left me to draw closer to him. Wow. And I was devastated. I yeah. was devastated. And nobody knew. Nobody knew what was going on. So none of my brothers, my parents, my sister-in-laws, or anybody else in Montana, you know, I sell real estate. Nobody knew what was going on. Nobody knew about casinos as the true churches in America. Nobody knew about, you know, uh, Jewish conspiracy to take over the world and, and a number of other crazy ideas. Right. And, and uh, so I was very paranoid, kept it quiet. And then when Pace finally left, instead of realizing he was the problem, he was the only one I was talking to. Right. So here I am. The only voice in my head was this little narcissistic madman. Well, you, but you're trying to, you're trying to save your marriage. Yeah. Right. And, and you realize that he's really the key to saving your marriage. So you're trying to get to her through him. Right. Right. To try and put this thing back together and maybe try to convince him that, you know, that, that, that you and Paige, you and Paige need to stay, to, stay together. Yeah, and you know, the you're, way I, you're almost desperate at this point. You're trying to, oh, you're sort of reaching for anything you can reach for. Grasping. Yeah. Absolutely desperate. Yeah. You know, I, the way I write it in my book is that, you know, he held the, the keys to salvation and the keys to my wife's affection. And um, of course, he didn't hold the keys to my salvation, but at the time I thought I did because, you know, my former wife would have been brainwashed for most of her life. Right. And my in laws were because, Robert met my former in-laws before Paige was even born. They went to a oh, small wow. seminary together back in the early 70s. Oh, so, okay. yeah, she knows no other life. So, but for me, for many years, again, I was kind of like, boy, this guy's weird. I didn't want anything mm -hmm. to do with him. But I eventually got worn down, was brainwashed for maybe two, two and a half years. Yeah. So when she left, you know, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I lost 30 pounds. And yet I was blind to the fact that this little narcissistic madman was really the architect behind all of this. Right. And then it wasn't until four months after she left me, you know, took three of the youngest kids with her to Idaho, kind of cut off my contact. I finally reached out to my family and told them what was going on. Yeah. And they, of course, saw it immediately. They saw the red flags immediately. So all the, all everything, all the dots started connecting. Yeah. And now, even though I was only brainwashed for less than three years, it took me like a good year to finally have the Lord 
open my eyes and ears so I could see the truth, stand on my own two feet, um, and recognize that Robert was the problem. And then I was able to, you know, fight for my kids so that they would not continue to grow up in this little cult, which really got worse, you know, when she left. It, she kind of doubled down on the following of Uncle Robert. Because when she left, you know, I would have been a shell of a man, afraid mm -hmm. of my own shadow. Sure. You know, in the Christian faith, there is, you know, victory in Christ. But under his tutelage, I was more scared and more doubtful than at any other point in my life. Yeah. And that's not by accident. Cult leaders do that on purpose. Yeah, that's, yeah, they that's can provide the yeah. yeah, they provide the cure. And now they're even that much more brilliant because they've helped you, even though they caused you to become an emotional wreck. Do you mind taking a second? I know this is probably incredibly painful to talk about, but do you mind taking a second and sharing with us how you got to the place where you got to, where you realized that he was the problem? I mean, you said it took a year. Yeah. You mind walking us through that process? Because there are going to be people that are going to listen to this and they're in the throes of this right now, right? Mm -hmm. And they may not even realize it. And they by don't. hearing your story and reading your book, they'll they'll self-discover. You with me? Yep. So how do you get... So, so this all happens. She leaves you. You're now reeling. You're talking to him. You're trying to grasp, like we talked about, for for whatever hope you can possibly get. Right. And then at some point, you end up going to church. And church, at some point, you're able to get through this process. What does that look like? How does that process start? What does that look like that took a year? Sure. And to set the stage even more, you did a good job there, Mike. You know, even on the back of my book there in that little orange section, I always say that you never know you are in a cult. You only know you were in one. Right. Right. So it's undue mind control. So no one ever joins a cult knowingly. No one's ever in a cult. It's always something better, more sublime, right. more real, or more whatever. Again, right. no one ever thinks they're in a cult. I didn't either. Okay. So when I finally reached out to friends and family, they, they saw immediately and they were very kind and patient with me because I was still a wreck. I'm sure they knew it. I didn't, you know, I didn't think I was brainwashed, but I was now fast. Uh, so let's rewind about two years before Paige left me. Okay. Uncle Robert, again, was not related to any of us. He's like five foot six from Syria, short mm -hmm. guy, bald, jet black hair, olive complexion. I'm six, five Paige was six, one Northern European looks. Mm -hmm. And um, he had two sons, but no grandsons. And so Paige told me one night on our date night, we used to have Saturday night date night, mm -hmm. that she wanted to be a surrogate and provide Uncle Robert with a male heir. Now, at the time, we had five kids. She was almost 40. Mm -hmm. We had talked about having a sixth. And um, I, of course, was repulsed by this idea. And she would, you know, in vitro through one of her Robert's sons, mm -hmm. provide a male heir. And I'm like, well, what happens if you have a girl? Well, I'll just keep trying. Again, I was enraged and repulsed by the idea. It never happened, thankfully. That also started us quicker down the road of separation. Right. Right. I was very upset by it. Um, so now she's left. And I'm, of course, this fraudulent Christian. I'm, I'm a Satan, sorcerer, demon, whatever. And... Um, she and Robert are now telling me, you know, Peter, you're not really a father. You're just a dad. You're just a bloodline. You're just a sperm donor. To help the kids, you need to be as far away from them as possible so they can recover from you, right? Because like anything that kids are suffering through, it's because of me, not because of this little narcissistic Uncle Robert. 
they've now blamed it all on me. So whatever any of the problems the kids are having, it's all my fault because I'm just a bloodline and a sperm donor. And that really started me down the road. Like that wasn't an aha moment. It was one of several aha moments. That would have been the first where I thought, okay, that's wrong. Yeah. Because prior to that, you know, Paige and Uncle Robert couldn't do anything wrong. They were right, right. on everything. When I read that in an email, as, as messed up as I was, I said, that is wicked. Yeah. And of course, my family, when they read those emails, immediately saw that. Wow. And that got the ball rolling. So you read that email. Obviously, you realize that there's this is wrong, like on many levels. And then at that point, you reach out to somebody or how does how do you initiate this process? Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, again, she left January 14th, 2017. Yeah. Remember the day. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't until about late April, early May. So uh, the two oldest boys stayed with me because one was in college, a freshman at MSU. The other one was in high school. So Paige didn't want to pull them out. But now at this point, we're not talking much because they believe mom and they think I'm awful. The three younger ones are with mom in Northern Idaho. I, I can, I'm sleeping one to two hours a night. I had lost 30 pounds. I was a wreck. Nobody knew. So I had no one to talk to other right. than Robert. who's right. like the guy that's causing all this. So I finally called my parents who kind of figured something must be up because I hadn't talked to them in months. Told them, and then I called all my brothers and just dropped a bomb up. You know, Hayes left me and took the kids. And, and they had no idea. So then I started talking to them every day on the phone, right? Yeah. And they're like, Peter, you need to get into counseling. I mean, I would call them. I'd be sobbing on the phone for half an hour straight. So, you know, then that summer I got counseling. And then I finally told the people at my office nine months after that. And then I started telling people locally what was happening. And so it was a it was a gradual process over that spring and summer. And, and again, there's a lot more that went on during that one year that was unbelievably wicked and traumatic. Um, it was a really hard year. Yeah. I learned a lot from it. I grew a lot. Oh, sure. I wish I could have learned these lessons differently. Yeah. But I'm a million times stronger now than I was. Yeah. When I was brainwashed. Yeah. So... So really your family is is who sort of spurred you into finding counseling. Yeah, so I had a brother that said, you know, you should really get counseling. I thought, ah, come on, I don't need this. And, and nothing against counseling, but, you know, I remember I would go, and this counselor now is a friend of mine still. Like, you know, I saw her for like eight months, but we still keep in touch. We're friends. I just had to pay her 150 bucks an hour. So, right. um, you know, to me, you just need really good wise counsel, whether that's a counselor you have to pay for or a mentor, a friend, a father, an uncle, a brother, a neighbor. Right. And so I would go see her like once a week for a couple months. But more than that, I would call my one brother. I'd call another brother. I'd call my friend in Idaho. I'd call this guy. And I had like four or five people that I had to talk to to get through the day yeah. for months. So I was very blessed in having that where these people would take time and it was probably very hard on them because yeah. I was, I was, I mean, after getting out the phone with me, they were probably like, man, I need a beer. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> after listening to what Peter's going through. Yeah. So I was fortunate that I had friends and family like that. That's awesome. So um, you go through this period of roughly a year yep. and you're you're just trying to grapple. You're just trying to to get your head around 
what has happened to you over the 20 some year period, right? Once you're through that, then what happens? So um, what it really then came down to was what's going to happen to the kids. So right. again, we had five kids. Now I've kind of seen the light. I still, you know, did not want the divorce. She filed for divorce in November. I did not want that. I tried to fight it. And I also said, I'm not just going to let the kids move away and I'll become like an uncle, right? Or a buddy instead of their dad. So we, uh, I had very good lawyers. Thankfully, I still have them. Unfortunately, I still have to keep paying because it's, yeah. it's still getting dragged out. Oh, wow. And we got what's called a guardian ad litem involved. Okay. Now, if, if you don't know what that is or your listeners don't know, it's, um, I think it's a Latin term, but courts uh, hire these people or appoint them to look after the best interest of minor children in a high conflict divorce. Right. So of course, Paige didn't want that. She didn't want any lawyer. She wanted Uncle Robert to negotiate and we'll be done with it, right? You know, and just kick Peter out of their lives. Well, sorry, but I wasn't going to go along with that. Right. Good for so, you. We got the garden at light appointed by the judge, and she wrote a jaw-dropping 50-page report that in it she obviously saw the clear signs of a small cult, and cults are abusive to children. It's like, that's not my opinion. That is a, I guess you'd probably call it a medical fact. Yeah. It's abusive to be in a cult for a child. And then she also detailed what she said was the worst case of parental alienation she'd ever seen. My lawyer said the same thing. And then when I got the kids back, the counselor said the same thing. That's basically where one spouse demeans the other to the kids. So the kids are being taught that I was literally the devil. I right. was Satan. I was a sorcerer, a liar, a fraud, a coward. And um, I remember in one conversation, one of my children just kind of got triggered because what was happening was Uncle Robert, you know, was really sowing hatred and discord. There was a direct right. line from him to Paige and to the kids. And the kids are soaking this up, right? Because that's what they do. They're kids. They're trusting. So one well, of my children says, programmed all this all their lives. Oh yeah, like a, right? like a I mean, this virus. Is, yeah, this is a culmination of years and years and years and years. I had one child say, "Dad, if I was a devil, I would want someone to tell me." Along the lines of, "Well, that way, if somebody tells me I'm a devil, I can you know take steps to remedy this issue." Right. And, and that's what they literally thought, like, well, you know, dad, you're a devil. So we're helping you by telling you this. That's how bad it was. Unbelievable. So uh, the the courts accepted the GL report. They came to live with me. So that was, you know, almost six years ago. Yeah. No, it's a work in progress with all five kids, right? Sure. I have clearly seen the light. The Lord has rescued me. There's no question about it. Yeah. And my two youngest kids get it. And they still love their mom, as they should. I don't ever demean her because no matter what she has said and done, which is awful. She's still their mom. She's still their mom. Yeah. And I'm still their dad. Now with the two oldest boys, you know, they, they still agree with mom. So I don't have much contact with them. The middle child is probably the most dramatic and it's, it's still a work in progress. But I wrote my book so that they would know the full story. So I had was working on the sequel to my first novel, The Blue Team. And then um, my lawyers are like, can you give us a rundown, you know, of the marriage when you got married, when the kids are born? Mm -hmm. So that one page synopsis became five, became 20, became a book during COVID. Right. When I was here in Montana, I just wrote every day, finished the book. Yeah. And I wanted my kids to know the story because for much of their lives, they only heard one side of it. Right. Robert and Paige and their grandparents were all of one mind, which is Uncle Robert's mind. Right. 
And, um, and then I, you know, not like I was really comfortable airing my dirty laundry. And by the way, it's not really all that painful to talk about it. It's very cathartic. Yeah. Writing my memoir was unbelievably cathartic and therapeutic. It was. To connect the dots, right? Oh was, my gosh. Yeah. I well, can trace and to, put, and to put on paper and document yep. what's been up here and in here all this time, right? That had to have felt like you released a lot because in here and in here, it had to have felt this big, yep. right? Like this enormous burden. And when you got it out and you got it on paper and you were able to, to sort of download it, so to speak, right? You had to have felt better. I mean, I, you wouldn't be completely, you know, right. where to be, but I mean, part of the process, that's a big step. Oh, it was because, you know, again, the, the question would be like, like you would have other people that say, well, how did this happen? Yeah. Right. So in my mind, I might say, how did this happen? Yeah. Well, now I know. And I, yeah. and I put it all on paper and I, and yeah. I got it. Right? Well, yeah. And it clarifies things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. So just, just, and again, I'm, I'm just curious because this is your life story. Yep. What made you decide to write the novel, The Blue Team? Oh, sure. So the novel, The Blue Team, is about faith in basketball and identifying your greatest adversary, which is not right. the guy trying to block your shot or the teammate who won't pass you the ball. It's your own mind, right? right. We are our worst enemy. So, and I believe that as a Christian, we are saved from ourselves, right? Yeah. Doesn't mean you're going to make the game-winning shot, but if you take it, you know, life won't end if I don't make it, right? right. In other words, quit trying to be the next Larry Bird. Be the best you, be the best, best Peter, best Mike. Just do your right. best. Right. God created you for a reason. Yeah. So um, I, you know, based it on my life and times playing basketball at GW, worked on it off and on for like 20 years. Yeah. And and the funny thing is the, the irony is that kind of that principle of we are our own worst enemy was really uh, mostly learned from Uncle Robert. Like right. there are some things he shared that were really great. Yeah. Are things that weren't. Um, and he took advantage of those things, by the way. Oh, and he hated the fact that I would use sports as a metaphor for life, right? Like yeah. in the Bible, Christ uses agriculture because that's what his audience understood. Exactly. I like using sports to explain life, politics, whatever, parenting. Mm -hmm. He hated it because he wouldn't know a basketball from a apple, right? right? He didn't know anything about sports. And so then they trashed the book after it came out. And, you know, Paige had left me. He said, the only reason I wrote the book was to fool them into thinking I was a Christian. Direct quote. Unbelievable. Yeah. So anyway, this guy's a real prize. Okay. <laughs> so so you write so you write the blue team, and yep. then we now know why you wrote the book that you wrote. Stop the tall man, save the tiger. Yep. What's the title? What does the title mean again? I mean, it's about a dream that she had, yep. but can you explain yep. the title? Because it's a little bit of a sure. Uh, yeah, and no, it's like I, there's times where like I want people to, to, to read the book because it is fascinating. But basically, yeah. I, I'll tell it now because you've asked. Because okay, I'm six foot five, right? Yeah. And Robert's five foot six. Yeah. In the spring of '96, before I've met Paige, she gets baptized without Uncle Robert there, which drove him nuts. So baptism, public profession of faith. Then a couple months later, whatever, she has this dream. And she might have it once, twice, or a number of times. I don't know. But it was so profound and so disturbing that she writes her interpretation of it down, sends it to Uncle Robert. 
who then writes a 23-page letter back to her. Okay, now I, I was able to see the original and the envelope that it came in. And I'm a historian. I love history. So I went back and looked at the dates to verify. He wrote his letter on a Wednesday, mailed it on a Friday. Paige and I met on that Sunday at the Singles Bible Study in Pocatello. So she would have gotten this letter before she even, uh, right after she met me. Right. So the point is that she had the dream before she met me. Right. So in the dream, she's in a house with a boyfriend at the time, a guy named Chad, who I met once. This is, this is crazy. And there's a tiger loose. And if the tiger finds her, it's going to kill her. But she doesn't want to kill the tiger. She just wants to know where it is, kind of contain it, control it, because the tiger represents things she respects, trust, strength, dignity, honor, et cetera. Right. Okay. So then into the house, the door opens and into the house walks a tall man, but she can't see the face of the tall man. And she knows the tall man is there to get rid of the tiger. So she hides, the boyfriend disappears, and the tiger uh, is dispatched by the tall man. Now, 20 years later, I remember telling this to two sister-in-laws, and they were immediately like, oh, I know what that means. And yet in, which I know you do as well, I can see it yeah. on your face. Yeah. In the dream, Robert Booty, Uncle Robert, tries yeah. to convince Paige that since she doesn't want to really kill the tiger, tiger, which represents her ego, the old person, she's not saved, she's not a Christian, she's a fraud. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, who was this tall man? Are you sure he wasn't short? So he tries to make himself a tall man. And now Paige is the tiger, so she's not a Christian, right? Right. Now he convinces her. I told you that that he convinced her she wasn't saved. This That's is how he did it. Sick. When in reality, how it's obvious. This? And oh, by the way, in real life, I met the boyfriend Chad one time. He showed up at the second Bible study, and I've never seen him since. And in the dream, as soon as the tall man comes in, he, he disappears. disappears. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That is crazy. So in reality, like, you know, people say, well, can God speak to you in dreams? I don't know. He's God. He can do whatever he wants, right? Sure he can. Yeah. It's clear. I'm not here to save anybody. But yeah. I was a tall man yeah. there to warn Paige, hey, this guy, the tiger, is not who you think he is. Right. He's not helping you. Booty turns it on its head. And because of that, because of his ability to manipulate Paige, here we are. Unreal. Yeah. Absolutely unreal. Okay. So question for you. You mentioned before we hit record that you have another book coming out. It's a it's a sequel to The Blue Team. Yep. And it's going to be coming out in a few months. We're going to have you back to talk about okay. that. Yep. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap up? No, just the fact that, uh, first of all, I appreciate it, but the so the sequel to the blue team will be where the main character is Thomas. So in the blue team, it looks at kind of faith in basketball from the perspective of a player. Mm -hmm. And on the sequel, he's a college coach and he's, you know, he's, he's married. He's got a couple of kids. So it, it looks at, you know, the issues of faith and sports through the eyes of a coach and a husband. Gotcha. And then there will be a third, there'll be a, a trilogy. And awesome. at that one, he'll be a, still a husband and a father, but his kids will be like at high school playing age. Okay. So now he's, you know, how does he navigate, you know, being a father and not pushing his boys too much. Yeah. So it kind of shows the life of one person in multiple roles associated with faith and basketball. I love that. I love that. That's yeah, awesome. good. Thank you. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here and thank you for telling your story. 
And thank you for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. This has been really cool. I cannot yeah, believe enough. Thank you, Mike. Good to meet you, buddy. You too. Thanks again. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.